Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of We're Talking Shift. This is the podcast where we talk shift because when we feel stuck, if it's time to level up, rise to a challenge, make a health shift, a relationship shift, an emotional shift, in other words, any kind of meaningful, effective change in our lives, the very first thing that we have got to shift is our thinking. That is the antidote to feeling stuck. I have a special guest today that I'm super excited to share with you. His name is Rob Shear. He is the founder of Comfort Cases, which is a charity whose mission is to inspire communities to bring dignity and hope to the over 400,000 youth in foster care in the U.S., now, in February 2017, Rob's interview with Upworthy went viral, garnering over 100 million shares. He was subsequently featured on Ellen, The Today Show, and most recently, a fantastic documentary directed by Bryce Howard called Dads, which I just watched uh, a few days ago on Apple TV, and I was just blown away by it. Rob's story of growing up in an extremely abusive household and then going from family to family in the foster care system is it's pretty heartbreaking. The life that he endured as a child and a young person, well, that destroys most people. But somehow, this unique and amazing man not only survived, but has managed to do something quite rare and remarkable given his circumstances. I think we can always use inspiring stories about people who have triumphed over incredible odds to help keep us, well, to help us keep things in perspective and remind us of what we're capable of overcoming and achieving. So I, I think hearing Rob's story will give you pause to think about some things in your own lives in a new way. So without further ado, Rob, welcome to We're Talking Shift. Oh, Lori, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk with you. I am so grateful to have you here, spending some time with us today. Um, well, you know, as everybody just heard, you have a pretty, um, pretty crazy, um, heartbreaking, and yet inspirational story. And I want to talk about comfort cases, but I really want to give some context to why that is so important and why you're doing what you do. So if it's cool with you, I would just love to dive in by starting with... Um, you know, what you do, why, I guess, because what you're doing now is directly a result of your experiences as a child. Let's just start there and, you know, how and why you ended up becoming a foster child yourself. Yeah, who would have thought, who would have thought the homeless boy would be where he's at today? I think about that, who would have thought, you know, that where I was and where my journey started 53 years ago is where I would be sitting at a table today. You know, my journey started out probably very different than most people. I'm the youngest of 10 kids. My mother had been married six times and we lived in and out of every shelter in Maryland, Virginia, and DC, and up and down the East Coast. I don't ever remember living in one place for any period of time. Um, and I don't remember pictures on the wall, much less remember my mother wrapping her arms around me and saying that I mattered or that she loved me. I do remember the monster that lived in our house, and that was my father. Being the youngest of 10 kids, um, as we moved around quite a bit, my parents suffered from drug addiction, alcoholism, and mental illness. And my father suffered from it worse than anyone. And he took that out on each and every one of us kids. And from my earliest memories, I remember my father sitting in a recliner and he would yell out to one of us kids to get him his Pabst Blue Ribbon out of the refrigerator. And we always knew we would look at each other hoping it wouldn't be our name that was called, but when it was, we would run as fast as we could to the refrigerator and we'd grab that Pabst Blue Ribbon and we'd run back to the chair. We knew no matter how fast we ran, we were going to have that cherry of that cigarette put out on our leg. Every day I get to be reminded of that. And that went on Jesus. from the time I was a baby until I was 12. And when I was 12 years old, my parents died. 
And it was the greatest gift I ever got in this entire world. Finally, I was going to escape the pain and the punishment and the lack of love, the lack of food. Um, I was going into a greater life, which was foster care. Wow. Gosh, was I so wrong? Mm -hmm. You know, the fact is, is at that point, being the youngest of 10 kids, my brothers and sisters had already fallen to the wayside. They were falling one by one. And I went up to my first home with my trash bag. I remember walking into the front door of my home. And I remember my foster mother looking and pulling things out of that trash bag. And she looking at my foster father and saying, he doesn't have any decent clothes to wear to church tomorrow. And he needs to take a shower. I remember walking down the hallway and I remember going into that bathroom and she shut the door behind me and there in the tub laid a bar of soap, a bar of soap. Mm -hmm. That bar of soap at that moment, Lori, changed my life because I knew at that moment that my life had changed. See, at that moment, as I looked at that bar of soap, I wanted my mom back. I wanted my dad back, no matter how bad he beat me, because I just wanted my family. And instead, I was getting ready to get into a shower. I was going to grab a bar of soap. I was going to lather my body up. And what was their favorite colors? What were their middle names? See, the fact that we don't even think about the dignity that children deserve to have in the system. Kids come into foster care because of choices other people made, not because of the choice they made. But at that moment, I made the choice that I was going to be the good kid. Mm -hmm. I was going to be the kid that every family wanted. When before you asked to clear the table, I'd already started to clear the table. Before you asked to start the vacuum, I already started the vacuum because I wanted to be wanted. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, I'm a senior in high school. I'd made it. 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, I am 18 years old. And let me, you know, that only 54% of kids in foster care graduate from high school. And I was going to be one of the 54%. I was going to be the first one in my family to walk across the stage and receive a piece of paper that everybody told me would change my life. Mm -hmm. Well, 1984, fall. Two weeks after my 18th birthday, I come home and waiting for me at the front door was my trash bag full of my belongings. My foster father told me that the check wasn't coming anymore because I'm now of age and I could no longer live there. And I literally became a homeless kid, a homeless kid living on the streets of Northern Virginia. I knew that night, the first night of being homeless, that I deserved better. How did you know that, Rob? I, I mean, I got to stop you for a second because here's the thing. You, it's so unusual that you are having these thoughts from, from such a young age, like, okay, what do I need to do to make sure um, I'm loved and wanted? What do I need to anticipate needs to be done? I mean, that's some pretty critical thinking for a, a child. And then now here you are, even after all of that, you're going, I deserve more. I mean, that's so opposite of what most young people, particularly in the situation like you were in, would even have those kinds of thoughts. I'm so curious about what made you different, think differently. Well, you know, I truly believe it's the one act of kindness that has gone on the ripple effect throughout my life. Mm. I remember as a young boy, there was a neighbor. She loved me more than anything in the world. It was the one act of kindness that made me realize that I mattered. I remember there was a teacher, you know, Mrs. Cosman in sixth grade. She was a teacher that truly made sure that she real that I realized that I mattered and that I truly was wanted. And it was that kindness all throughout my life and periods of my life that would give me that reassurance that I deserved the same thing that all the other kids that I was seeing deserved. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that when you're a kid in the system, you are feel like you're disposable, that you're invisible. And imagine carrying a trash bag. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about totally beating down someone's self-esteem. Right. But for me, I just, you know, and let me tell you, Laura, I'm going to tell you, my life has not always been, oh, you know, I'm shooting rainbows because I think life is all great. No, I mean, tell you, it, it, read my, my memoir. It I talk very openly about my drug addiction. Mm -hmm. I talk very openly about my mental illness. Um, just recently, and when I say recently, about a year ago, I just did a new Upworthy video. And it was shocking to my followers because 
because I talked about my mental illness like I probably had never revealed because I had just gone through a really bad spell of depression where I remember I could barely get out of bed. And I remember my then 10-year-old son crawling into bed with me and saying, Daddy, I need you. It was that lifeline, that rope that he threw me in that dark well that I was in, was able to grab that rope and pull myself out of it. Mm-hmm. It was that one act of kindness. And that's the way my life was. But at 18, being homeless, everything changed. Mm-hmm. I remember I would hide my trash bag behind the school and I would hope kids wouldn't make fun of me because I couldn't tell you the last time I got a haircut or brushed my teeth and my clothes were dirty. And I know I smelled and mm-hmm. kids would push me in the locker and I would I would wait till all the kids left the cafeteria and then I would go and I'd dig in the trash and get food to eat that night. I had a $3.35 an hour job at the local taco place and the owner found out that I was homeless and he would leave the outside bathroom door unlocked so I could sleep there. And when I wasn't doing my $3.35 an hour job or sitting in a school, I was sitting at the public library reading every book I got my hands on because I even knew then if I educated my mind, I could educate my future. I really believe that. And and knowing at that time, I'm getting in contact with some by my biological siblings and, you know, they're in prison and their teen pregnancies and, you know, their suicide and drug addiction and, It was rough. And, Mm -hmm. you know, October, November, December, January, February, March, I was barely making it. I kept wanting a teacher, a principal, a guidance counselor to look at me and say, we know you're homeless and we're here to help you. Mm -hmm. The problem is no one ever did. And the reason they didn't do it is because if you looked at me and if you acknowledged me, then you'd have to realize that you failed me. Mm-hmm. And that is hard for people to understand. Mm-hmm. See, a lot of times we pull up at the traffic light and we will not make eye contact with the panhandler that's standing at the corner. And I feel that so many times we don't make eye contact because we find our inner failure in us. And I right. think that's what happened to me. And then all of a sudden it happened. I'll never forget it. The beginning of May, I get a call down to the principal's office. I was so excited. I was literally skin and bones. I had not had any type of mental hygiene care, any care whatsoever. And I thought, oh my gosh, they are finally gonna acknowledge the fact that I'm homeless. And I walked down to the principal's office and I walked up to the secretary and I told them my name and she said, Mr. Thompson wants to see you in his office. And I went over into Mr. Thompson's office and I'm standing there and he's like, Robert, And I said, yes, sir. And he was like, you're going on the senior trip. And I said, no, sir. I said, I didn't have the money to pay for the trip. By the way, they were going to New York City for two days on a bus. And and I couldn't pay for that. And I said, I I couldn't pay for it, Mr. Thompson. I'm not going on the senior trip. He said, somebody paid for you in here and handed me an envelope with $75. Really? That was the most unbelievable thing you could ever imagine. That was the push that I needed to get across that stage. That was the act of kindness, you know, and I fast forward and I find out that actually it was my teacher. Mm. It was a teacher in my high school who had been through my high school years with me from freshman year, who knew that I was homeless, who always, for some reason, always had extra food. Um, She paid for my trip and she left $5 because she wanted me to know that I mattered. Mm -hmm. And it truly changed me. And I got back and I had enough energy, enough, you know, I could do this to get across that stage. And then graduation day came. Oh my gosh, I made it. I actually made it to that day. I remember the teacher lined us all up in our caps and gowns and they started calling names. And people would walk across the stage and Lori, the roar, the clapping, people screaming. And then they called my name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what you heard. Silence. Yeah. Silence. I walked across the stage and I literally walked out of the auditorium. I went back to the back parking lot and I sat down on the curb. And for the first time, I truly cried. I cried for the loss of my parents. I cried for the loss of my siblings. I cried for the fact that my community had failed me in ways they would never know. I cried because I knew at that moment, 
I truly was homeless. See, before I had my school to go to and the public library and my $3.35 an hour job, and in my mind, like so many other kids who are homeless, we don't consider ourselves homeless. See, we all know that 30,000 children will age out of foster care this year. We also know that 70% of them will experience homelessness within two years. Mm-hmm. We don't see them because we fit in. We fit in in the mall. We fit in at the public library. We're not standing around panhandling. Mm-hmm. And I was one of those kids. And I knew at that moment that I had to do something. I hung around town for a couple of weeks living under a bridge. And then I decided I was going to join the United States Navy. I hitchhiked down Route 32 to Fort Meade, Maryland. And I went to the barracks and I said to the, the gate person, I want to join the Navy. And he said, son, it doesn't work like that. He says, you have to go meet with a recruiter. Mm. So I went and met with the recruiter. I took my ASVAB test. I stayed homeless for a couple of more weeks. And then I was reported to the base. I'll never forget the day that I reported to the base before I got shipped out to boot camp. I knew at that moment when they gave me the key to the Red Roof Inn to spend the night before I flew to Great Lakes, Illinois the next day, that my life was getting ready to change. Yeah. I put the key in the door. I walked into the hotel room. I dropped my trash bag and I just exhaled. I got in the shower and I proceeded to scrub the dirt, the dirt that you could see, but also the dirt that I felt that was inside of me. Mm-hmm. Again, I got out of the shower and looked in the mirror and I said, this is your moment. I threw the trash bag away with everything that was in it. I walked out of that hotel room and walked across the street to the Fort Meade naval base and i said this is it this is the new me i no longer wanted to be called robert i wanted everyone to call me rob and at that moment i said i would never tell my story that i would never let anybody know how i had gotten to that point where i was in my life and off i went to the navy Mm -hmm. i became very successful in the navy and then i became a successful businessman and i never looked back See, my community had truly taught me something. It truly taught me the three golden rings. Number one, me. Number two, me. Number three, me. See, that's Mm -hmm. what we see so much. It's Mm -hmm. the me. It's the me. It's the me. And that's what I was. I had to have the biggest house. I had to have the most expensive cars. And I had to have as much money as I possibly could imagine in my bank. Because if I had all those three things, then I succeeded. I succeeded mm-hmm. in my community, and I would have people look up at me. Gosh, was I wrong, Lori? Mm-hmm. I was so wrong. What What made you realize what happened, or you know what what got you to that point where all of a sudden you went, "I'm wrong. This is not yeah. it." I'll never forget it. You know, I'll never forget the moment that truly changed my life. See, I knew I always wanted to be a dad. I knew that being a dad was my one goal that I wanted to get that, you know, I didn't think that I could ever have that. Being a gay man, um, it just wasn't something that was we were seeing. I never had met a gay person that had was a dad. Mm-hmm. I much less ever met a gay person that was married. And 15 years ago, I met the most incredible person in the entire world, my husband, Reese. My husband, Reese, who, by the way, found out everything about my past, who met some of my biological family, and we are so different. My husband grew up in the Midwest in Kansas. He has his master's. His parents have been married for 54 years. He just never could ever imagine someone like me and the life that I had. Mm-hmm. But we met, and he really believed in me, my biggest fan. And when I told him I wanted to be a dad, he said he did too. And so after my husband had graduated from getting his master's 11 years ago, we decided to start the journey and we decided that we were going to adopt and I wanted to adopt a baby overseas. And we were sitting drinking coffee one Saturday morning and my husband looked at me and he said, now, can you explain to me why we're not adopting a kid from foster care? And I said, because we don't talk about that. He said, you know, Rob, he said, maybe the fact that all these years you haven't wanted to talk about that, maybe that's your problem problem ah he called you out moment i know he's so damn smart (laughs) i said you know what i remember the tear rolling down my cheek and i remember i said i failed i failed 
I failed my community. I was so worried about what all of you thought about me that I forgot about the most important thing, kids who are in the system. Yeah. And so that particular Monday, we went down to DC Child and Family Services. We put in our application to adopt one child. And who would have ever thought that nine months later, we would end up with four kids? Uh, <laughs> how did, so let me like, did you just keep adding on or, or are they no. so, siblings? So we went through all of our classes and um, we did everything we needed to do. And we knew that we wanted to foster to adopt. And we knew that we wanted one child. And we lived, my husband's an interior designer. And we had bought a brownstone and restored it. And my husband had made it where there were two bedrooms, one for toddler, one for an infant, because we didn't know what age we would get. Mm-hmm. And um, one Thursday afternoon on in January, um, 11 years ago, I got the phone call from the social worker saying there was a brother and sister who needed a home. Ah. And the little girl was four and her brother was two. And they said, we know that you said that you wanted to foster to adopt. And we know that you only wanted one, but these two kids really need a home really bad. And they've been in the system and you would be their third home. And we think that their mom's going to get her stuff together, but we really need them to have a home that's stable. And I remember calling my husband and I told him about, you know, exactly what the social worker had said. And he said, well, let's meet them. And so I called her back and said, we'd like to meet them. And that evening she brought over Amaya and Makai. And I remember the doorbell rang and I ran to the door and I opened it and there stood this brown eyed girl with this big gap between her front teeth (laughs) and the social worker holding her hand and she was holding a baby. And I said, I thought you said he was two. And she says, he is. I said, he looks so little. And she says, he has failure to thrive. They said that he's probably never going to talk and most likely will not walk without some type of braces. And are you sure you want this one? As if he was a piece of clothing. Uh She handed me that little boy. And I'll never forget that moment. My husband walked into the room from work. And I was standing there and he picked up Makai. And I saw the way he looked at our son that I knew at that moment that I wanted to share that same love that I could see he had already for Makai. Mm-hmm. The social worker, after a couple of hours, took Makai and Amaya. And the next day, she called me and she asked, what do you want to do? I said, when do we have to decide? She says, you have to decide today. She says, on Monday, D.C. is shutting down because our first black president is being sworn in. And so the whole town was shutting down. And so I called Reese and I said, what do you want to do? He said, let's do it. And so we did. So Amaya and Makai came that day and they came carrying trash bags. I was shocked, Lori. I couldn't believe it. After all of these years that I had been in the system and I had carried that trash bag, are you kidding me that we actually still allow kids to carry trash bags? And I looked at the social worker and I said, this has got to be absolutely crazy. I was like, why do they carry trash bags still? She's like, what else should they carry? I was like, how about a little bit of dignity? Mm -hmm. It just blew my mind. But then all of a sudden we were dads to these two beautiful kids and one who was special needs. And so life changed and it actually changed that particular day. You know, we were barely getting by with Makai. It was three months into the kids being there. And every day, Reese would leave work at lunchtime and go to the daycare, and he would he would move Makai's arms and legs and look at him and say, "I'm here, Makai. We're here." And then at night, I would sit there on the floor and I would move his arms and legs to give build him up as much muscle mass as he could. See, Makai had failure to thrive, and we were actually told that Makai was autistic. But Reese and I had already started doing research and realizing that he wasn't fitting the classic autistic child. Uh-huh. So, we, you know, we just knew at that moment it was another kid in the system who somebody was trying to label. And so we, you know, just kept working with them. And then the phone rang. It was a social worker again. They had two more kids, a two-year-old little boy and his six-month-old brother. Uh-huh. They needed a home and they were being fast-tracked to adoption. And they said that we would take a Mayan Makai and put them in another home and we can give you these two boys. And Reese and I were like, are you crazy? You know, you're not taking a Mayan Makai anywhere. They have been with us for three months. They're, you know, they're thriving. Amaya's smiling. You know, Makai is actually looking at us and making eye contact. I was like, this can't happen. And they were like, but these kids, they, they're going to be up for adoption. 
And I looked at Reese and I said, we have to do this. And we became a family of six. (laughs) So we had a six month old, two, two year olds and a four year old and one of them special needs. It was crazy. That is crazy. Bless your heart. Crazy. It was crazy. You know, living in the city. I mean, just, 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 so could just imagine, I mean, we're living in the city, we're living in the brownstone, we're taking the metro, we have four kids, we have a, tr- a stroller that holds three kids, um, you know, we're, we're going to doctor's appointments and visitations with bio families and, you know, and we're still just trying to get by with Mackay. And after a couple of years, you know, as we're fighting the system to adopt our children, we realized that living in the city just wasn't working, that we needed to move to the suburbs. We needed better schooling for our children, and we needed to get Makai stabilized. At that moment, Makai was um, barely talking. He finally was walking. And I remember that after our adoption was finalized, when he was about four years old, um, almost five, we took him to Children's Hospital, and we got the devastating news that we knew was totally what we expected in some ways, because we knew he wasn't autistic, and the doctors confirmed that. What they confirmed to us was worse. The Mackay had fetal alcohol syndrome. The Mm -hmm. Mackay's frontal lobe was not developed and it was never going to develop. I remember the doctor looking at us and saying, this is probably the most you're going to get from him. And I remember us looking at the doctor saying, you don't know who we are because Mm -hmm. we never say never in our family. You know, we were told we would never be married. We were told we would never have children and look at us now. And so we went home with our son and we made decision at that moment that my husband was going to be a stay at home dad and we were going to do everything in our power to give Makai the best we could give. And so we started doing research and he found out a story about a young girl who had fetal alcohol syndrome and that she was in foster care and she was given to a family that owned a farm and that they had said that there was definitely change because of the farm animals. And I said to Reese, my gosh, this is crazy. I said, what do you think? And he says, here's five farms for sale. (laughs) I love it. He was ready for you. He was ready. We went out and bought a farm. We have goats. We have chickens. We even have a pig named Penelope. But the most amazing thing, Lori, is I have a 13-year-old son who reads on a fifth grade level. I have a 13-year-old son who will walk up to you and say, hi, my name is Makai. I have a 13-year-old son for the first time a couple of years ago, ran through the field, yelling, Daddy, I love you. Uh, I don't know what that feels like to have a child who we were told would never, ever do anything. But now we look at him and we know that kids are resilient. We know that if you believe in someone, their future can be brighter than we could ever imagine. So that's how our story came about. But then seven years ago, I was sitting in my job. I'm a banker by trade. I have an office on the East Coast, an office on the West Coast, and I was living the life. You know, my kids were very privileged. My husband, we, you know, we were able to travel. Um, and we used to have these huge toy drives at Christmas time. We would sit up in front of Ben's Chili Bowl in DC and people would come and drop off toys. And my husband would take my kids shopping to buy toys for all the needy kids in foster care. Mm-hmm. This one particular year, my husband walked into my office and he said, so we need to plan the toy drive. And I said, I don't want to do it. He says, what do you mean? He's like, what do you mean you don't want to do it? I said, I don't want to do it. I said, what are we teaching our children? Are we teaching our kids that if you give the needy kid a toy, it makes everything better? We get to pat ourselves on the back for one day. And then, by the way, on the 26th of December, we're all going to wake up and we're all going to go back with our lives. And nobody's going to truly think about the kids. And he said, Rob, what do you want to do? I said, I want to eliminate trash bags in foster care. It's still weighing heavy on my heart. He said, you're absolutely batshit crazy. (laughs) <laughs> I said, you know what? I said, you know I am. That's why you married me. I said, we can do it. So we got some of my senior people together from my company and some amazing volunteers and people from our church. And we all sat down around and I told them the story, my story. I finally opened up. See, people knew me as this vice president and they knew me as running these, this huge company, but they truly didn't know me. Right. And I told them. I told them where I started and how I was to get to where I was that day. 
What was that like for you? I mean, obviously, it took you a long time to get to that point, Rob, where you were willing to share the truth of your past, and you had, you had intentionally made sure that you didn't do that up to that point. What were you afraid would happen if you did? And then what was the reaction when you finally got to the point where you were ready? So I was worried that no one would love me. And I was worried that people would look at me different because I ate out of a trash can once in my life. Um, but I will tell you that when I told my story, it was true. I mean, I hear people say this and I don't mean to be cliche about it, but it truly, you could feel the weight come off your shoulder. Yeah. I was able to once again, as I did back when I was 18, when I went into that red roof in, I was able to exhale. Um, it was it was so free and liberating. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started to talk about what we would put in cases. And I remember my kids were like iPods and you yeah. know, really big back then. Of course. <laughs> I said, I said, we really need to know what they need, not what they want, what they need. Yeah. And so I thought about the very first night that my daughter arrived. I thought about the fact that we had gone shopping and we had filled two carts at Target and I just wanted her to smile. I remember when we got home and Reese filled the bathtub with bubbles and she got in the tub and you could barely see her little head, but she just wouldn't smile. And I remember looking at Reese and saying, I'm the happiest guy in the world, but to the saddest little girl. Mm-hmm. She got out of the tub. She put on her little pink robe. She went into her new bedroom and laying on the bed, Reese had laid three nightgowns. She picked one of the nightgowns up. She tore the tag off and she turned around and she smiled at me. I said, Amaya, why are you smiling? She said, Mr. Rob, I've never owned a new nightgown before. See, that's oh. just not acceptable. So we want to make sure that every single child gets their own pair of pajamas with a tag on it. We want to make sure that every child gets their own toothbrush and toothpaste, their own lotion, their own shampoo, their own conditioner, and their own bar of soap. Remember, my journey started by a bar of soap. We must make sure that we understand that children deserve to have dignity. And we cannot expect them to walk into strangers' homes and all of a sudden grab a bar of soap that everybody else has used. We also want to make sure that every child gets an activity. Kids who are under the age of 10 get a coloring book and crayons, and kids over the age of 10 get a journal and a pen and pencil set. A couple of years ago, I was filming a CNN special, and there was a young boy who got one of our cases. He started to unzip the case. He was about 13 years old, and he pulled out his journal, and he started to cry. I remember stopping the cameras, and I said, why are you crying? He said, Mr. Rob, he said, I've been in foster care for three years. I've been in 11 homes. He says, every home I went into, I've always just wanted to have a journal to write my music down in. And now I do. See, to that boy, that was his future. To that boy, that was showing him he was loved. And then we give every child a book. I believe as an author that there's no such thing as a used book. It's only a book that's been loved. You know, we're supposed to love books in our mind, love them in our heart. But the most flattering thing you could ever do with a book is pass it on. Right. And then every kid gets a stuffed animal. We make cases from birth up to the age of 19. And I don't care what anyone says. Everybody loves a good stuffy. <laughs> right. Finally, we give every child a blanket, a blanket. See, my son, Grayson, he was six years old when we started the charity. And he said, Daddy, we must give everybody a blankie. I said, a blankie? I said, you know these kids aren't cold, Grayson. And he said, no, Daddy. He said, we should give them a blankie so when they wrap themselves up in it, they know we love them. Wow, six. See, Mm -hmm. that's what each and every one of us want. We want to be wanted. We want to be loved. We want to know we matter. So we started with one case, two cases, five cases, 10 cases, 500 cases. And seven years later, we've become a national charity. And we have delivered cases to all 50 states, D.C. and Puerto Rico. And I know I do not have to remind your smart listeners, Puerto Rico belongs to us. It is surrounded by water, but so is Hawaii. Mm -hmm. We must take care of each other. And we have now delivered over 100,000 cases. We are a 96% volunteer-ran charity. And the one thing that we have done is we have done what our forefathers built communities for. They didn't build communities for you and I to live in our houses where all the bushes match. They built communities for us to take care of each other. And we must all realize that our community... It's not our zip code. 
It's our human race. So what affects people in Montana affects people in my little town of Darnstown, Maryland. And what affects people in Darnstown affects people in Phoenix. We must realize that it's our responsibility. It's our privilege to take care of each other. But one thing I've learned all these years later is I sit back, I think about my three golden rings. The three things that I realized that were important. Mm -hmm. Number one, my family my beautiful five children, my husband, my family. Mm -hmm. Number two, my community. You know, for so long, I was angry with my community. I felt that they had forgotten me. I felt that they didn't love me or want me. And the fact is, they always loved me and they always wanted me. They just weren't educated about me. They weren't educated about the fact of all the children in the system. I don't blame them. But now that I've educated them, I hope they stand next to me and fight the fight. And then my final ring, the one that I hope my children will never forget, is my dash. We've all heard the poem. Oh, yeah. We're all given one. Whether you're black, white, gay, straight, rich or poor, every single one of us is given the same exact thing. A dash. The year you're born. The dash. The year you die. I hope that when my children see my dash, that it shines so bright that they realize that their dad truly did what he said he would do. He changed his community. And to me, that's the most important thing. So Lori, that's my story. That I, I'm kind of speechless <laughs> because your story is, it's just, uh, it, it's, I mean, there's so many emotions, like there's just so many things about what you have gone through and what you have done with what you've gone through that are so unusual and so beautiful and uh, and so inspiring on so many levels. And I, it's like the words just don't even sound like they, you know, can really convey what I'm what I'm feeling. Um, I just... So let me just back up a little bit here, because you've covered a lot of ground, and your story is just a phenomenal one, I think. Um, what I want to ask you about um, is there's that there's that weird gap between the time a child ages out of the system and and making it to somehow being able to become a responsible adult on your own. And that age uh, is 18. So I'm thinking to myself, here you were, you know, I don't know what your foster family was like, but at some point, you know, they, they already knew, I guess it was planned, right? That they were going to, when you turned 18 and the check stopped coming, um, you, they were done with you. They had no more use for you. So you came home and found all of your stuff again in a trash bag. And now you're like, well, okay, I got to fend for myself. Now, kids, even kids that have a really good home and upbringing and family support are pretty frequently not ready to go out and make their way in the world by the age of 18, just cold turkey, you're out the door, right? So I'm, what, do, what is to be done with that gap from when kids are now out of the system, but yet they are completely incapable. They don't have the skills or the support or the, the knowledge or the, you know, maybe even the motivation, the, the confidence, all the things they need to go out now and take care of themselves and create a life. First of all, we have to realize that every single child deserves a family to love them. And we yeah. also have to realize that 18 should not be the age that children age out of the system, nor should it be 19, nor should it be 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. I believe that our system needs to be built around making successful stories. And how we do that is there's two ways. And I've said this all over the country. Our entire welfare, child welfare system has to be rebuilt. It is not broken. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It is shattered. It is absolutely shattered. It is an industry that makes money on the backs of children. And we have to prepare children for their future. Number one, how do we do that? One, we prepare them financially. We have to set these kids up for financial success. If we're able to pay foster parents and spill, spend literally almost three 
billion dollars in the child welfare system. Why can we not set aside a portion of money in an interest-bearing savings account for these kids? I'm not saying right them a check at 18. I'm not saying write them a check at 19. I'm saying give them a net. Mm-hmm. Give them a net. You know, my son, we have a new son that arrived in the fall of last year. I was giving a speech at a local school and I met this young boy who was 18 years old who was in foster care. He absolutely moved my heart like I had never felt in such a long time. And I came home and I told my husband about him. Well, little did I know that less than three months after meeting Alex, he would become my son. And Alex moved in with us in the in the fall of last year, and he just graduated from high school with a 3.6 and is enrolled in college in the fall. I tell you that story because the fact is, is that we believed in this young boy, and we believed in the fact that he was our future. That's what we need to do for all kids in the system. Set them up for financial success because I'm going to tell you, my 19-year-old, he is not ready to be out on his own. He needs his dads, and he knows that he has his dads. So when he was out in his car driving not long ago and he accidentally locked his keys in his car, who did he call? He called his dad. Why? Because I lectured him and then I paid for him to have a locksmith because that's what parents do. Mm -hmm. These children don't have that. And then number two, we have to open up the education pathways for these kids. And I do not mean just pay for tuition. We have to do complete wraparound services. Kids who are in foster care suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder twice the rate, twice the rate, Lori, as our combat veterans who come back from the front line. These are our forgotten children. We deserve to give them a brighter future. And let me tell you, in my county where I live, if the graduation rate was at 54%, we would have the superintendent's head on a platter. Why do we allow that in foster care? Why do we allow that only 11% of kids in foster care actually put an application in to apply to college? And the fact that only 3% of the youth that are in our foster care system get a four-year degree. You tell me the system isn't shattered, it's absolutely beyond shattered. Yeah, yeah, it, that's a mess. So what what is the likelihood, with with almost a half a million kids in the foster system, what's the likelihood or the, the, the percentage of them that are able to even create a somewhat stable or relatively successful life? Well, we know that the percentage is very low. It's not as high as we'd ever want because you just have to look at the prison intake. There's been a study that was done that 64% of all men who were in a prison cell from East Coast to West Coast were actually in foster care. There is an actual study that shows that 80% of all inmates, male and female, from one coast to the next, actually were touched by foster care. It is also known that 80% of all children who are human trafficked, 80%. Are from foster care. Jeez. That's these just... numbers are staggering. Yeah. yeah. We are seeing these. And by the way, this pandemic that we're all going through, this mm-hmm. coronavirus, these kids in foster care, they go through that every day. They go through isolation every single day. Can you imagine what they're going through today? 700. Lori, I hope when you go to bed tonight, I tell people all over the country, 700. Never forget that number. Because right now in the United States, that's what we're averaging per day entering foster care, 700 kids coming into a system that is absolutely shattered. What we need to do is we need to put our money into rebuilding families. We need to help these families before these kids even enter foster care. You know, I'll never forget the story that I heard It was a story that had gone viral about a woman in Ohio who wasn't able to pump breast milk and she needed formula. And in the middle of the night, she called 911 and 911. And this just happened just in the fall of last year. It was viral everywhere. And 911 spoke to the dispatcher and she was crying that she needed milk for her baby, her new baby that was born. And she couldn't she didn't have no money and she couldn't leave because she had other babies in the house. And the dispatcher got a police officer, police officer went and bought formula and took it to this woman and gave the woman the formula. Mm-hmm. You know, I admire that, but at the yeah. same time, I have a big problem with it because if that woman was in Harlem, if that woman was in the South side of Chicago, if that woman was in LA, in the she would have had her kids taken away from the word neglect. Mm-hmm. But instead, because she was a white woman in the suburbs, we looked at her differently. That's the first thing we have to stop doing is looking at each other differently. We have to lift each other up. 
make each other success stories and give children a brighter future than, by the way, taking them from a family because, oh, we're going to give you a better life. And then when you turn 18, we're going to throw you on the street. That's a better life. Yeah. The statistics show that kids are better off being at home with their neglectful biological parents than they are in this shitty system we have. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, (laughs) I want to ask you um, about the dad's documentary, um, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It it was phenomenal. Um, my daughter, Montana, and I know, I know, you know, Montana and I watched it, uh, and my husband, uh, we all three watched it a few nights ago and we were just seriously so blown away. It was so amazing. It was so touching. And I was so delighted to see somebody put so much emphasis and focus to put a spotlight on dads and their perspective and their role and their feelings about, you know, parenting and being dads, because you don't, it's not that often that you see that and it needs to be seen. Um, so I, I was just delighted on so many levels, but, um, I wanted to ask you because you were, uh, invited to be part of that. So what did that mean to you to be able to be in that documentary, share your story, um, yeah, just tell us a little bit about it. First of all, it was absolutely crazy that, you know, here this goat farmer from Darnstown, <laughs> Maryland, was actually picked to be in this documentary, my husband and I and our children. Um, it, it, you know, there were thousands of dads that Bryce could have picked, um, but she felt that our family needed to be shown on the screen. And we are so humbled by that. Mm-hmm. We are humbled by the fact that she. She believed in our family. She loves our family. And I will tell you, there could never be a more genuine person than Bryce Howard out there. Um, she to, still keeps in touch with our family. And we're, she's so supportive of our charity. Um, and it was just amazing to, to do this um, documentary. But let me tell you, little, very few people know this, Lori. It's the first time I think I've talked about this on any podcast. And I, I know I've been on a ton since the show was taped. Mm-hmm. But... Literally a month before the show was taped, our house caught on fire. It was on Christmas Eve and our house caught on fire and it, and, um, we had to move out of our home and we had to move into a temporary house for six months while they were rebuilding our home. And when they called to start filming, I had to tell the producers that, you know, we're not in our big house on this beautiful farm. We're in a two bedroom, one bath. There's six of us. Um, and you know, our, our home, and they were just blown away. And so they came, they flew to um, to the DC area. And Bryce was so adamant that we be in this project that they made it work. They we came and filmed in our backyard at our farm with our goats and all our animals. But the inside of where you saw us at sitting in the kitchen or yeah. sitting on the floor playing the games, that was actually a guest house that we were living in while our home was being rebuilt. <laughs> oh wow, that's amazing! I did not know that. And yeah. Um, yeah. so, well, thank God that. Um, you know, you were able to rebuild your home. Thank God that nobody was hurt. I mean, that could have been awful. And it was Christmas. Was it an electrical fire? It was Christmas. It was the night before Christmas Eve. It was about nine o'clock at night. My husband was in the kitchen with my our daughter cooking, baking cookies. And I was watching TV in front of the fireplace with our boys. And all of a sudden I saw the the um the mantle smoking and my husband's father is a retired fire chief and immediately i yelled for my husband and by the time he got into the living room the um the whole wall was going up in flames um and so we were able to grab the the dogs and grab the cat and grab the kids and get out of the house um but yeah we were lucky nobody was hurt you know it was um a little over 300 and some thousand dollars worth of damage but, Ouch. you know, we were safe. All of yeah. those things that, that burned up can be replaced. My yeah. children, they can never be replaced, right. you know. Right. So, yeah, but you know what? We're the shears. I mean, we <laughs> learn how to get through things when most people think that we couldn't. And we got through that. And, by the way, this house that we lived in had no internet. This house that we lived in had no cable. And we lived there for six months so you think this pandemic is bad? Try living in a t- house with teenagers with one bathroom and only 15 minutes worth of hot water. Lord, I don't know how you did it. You guys are saints. You are just 
Saints. That's crazy. That's incredible. That's and and now you have though this amazing story to tell. And you know what? With the things that really, in the big scheme of things, in the life that you had as a youth, I mean, really, that was like probably just a speed bump. It was. It was a cakewalk. Right. It was a cakewalk. Right. That's amazing. Um, you know, one of the things that there was a couple of things in in that documentary that you said that caught my attention, and and one of them was that you said you knew um, that you wanted to be a father at the age of six. And I think you mentioned that earlier too, when we were talking. Um, And I'm like, how many six-year-olds have the conscious awareness and the thought that they want to be a father? And I thought that was really interesting. I knew it. Let me tell you the reason why. Because I saw the kind of father that I had. Mm-hmm. I I saw the kind of dad I had, and I remember seeing Mr. Angel. Mr. Angel lived down the street, and he was the dad that I wanted. He was the dad that was out throwing the football in the front yard with his son. He was the dad that was standing at the bus stop when Todd would get home. I wanted that dad. And I knew that if I couldn't have that dad, I was going to be that dad. That's amazing. That is just amazing that you... At that age, you know what I mean? That you said to yourself, um, if I can't have it, I'll be it. And here yeah. you are, you know, you, uh, you, you had a mantra at the age of six. Yeah. Let me tell you, and it's funny because my brothers and sisters, and there's only, there's only five of us, there's five of us left. Um, I'm six. So we've lost, we've lost quite a few of them. Um, but my brothers and sisters, you know, I remember when my book came out, um, I actually sent my siblings a copy of my book before it was being published because I wrote, wanted them to read it. I didn't want them to be blindsided because it is a very raw memoir. And I remember mm-hmm. my sister, who is the closest to my age, called me up and she said, I'm so proud of you. And I said, what for? And she said, she said, because by you telling your story, you've actually helped heal me. And that was so moving for me. And I'm very close to my biological sister. And I was so moved by that. I was so moved by the fact that, you know, we really don't realize how our ripple effect in life goes when we just tell our story. And every one of us have one, by the way, Lori. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how great your life has been. We all have a story and we must tell each other our story. Because you never know how it's going to impact someone's life. Yeah. Yeah. And and what I, exactly. And it's so, uh, it's one of the most admirable things about you, Rob, is that you have done something that's very, very difficult for so many people to do, which is you've used the pain of your past experiences to drive you to do something good rather than allowing that pain to use you to destroy you. You used it, you're using it to serve a much higher purpose. I mean, I don't know if there is a higher purpose than what you're doing now, um, really. So, so not only have your actions and your decisions resulted in helping countless other children as well as educating people, but... I can only imagine that it's been another step and a super instrumental um, step in helping you heal, continue to heal. Well, you know, first of all, I have to tell you that, you know, it's been many, many years of therapy and I'm so happy for my therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I tell people all the time, don't blame the system. Don't blame it. Help me change it. Yeah. Help me change it. You know, the fact is, is there's too many times that we sit back and want to blame, blame, blame. No, let's stop blaming. Let's change it. That's what we should do. And if and I remember when I, I did the Today Show a couple of years ago and Kathy Lee looked at me and she um, she had heard my story and she said this was actually right this three years ago because for my I've written my book. And she said, you know, Rob, she said, you're one person that I know that took pain and made it into a purpose. And you know that I never forgot that. I never forgot that moment where she said, you took pain and made it into a purpose. And I truly believe that. You know, yeah. I, I, I I say to my husband all the time, and by the way, I drive a Toyota hybrid now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, am, I am so, 
so far from the materialistic things of where I used to be um, that because I say to my husband all the time, I look at my five children and I look at them stare at me and I think I am the richest man in the world. The richest man in the world, because nobody can put a price on the love, the unconditional love that my children have for their dads and their dads have for their children. Yeah, that's beautiful. I I got literally chills when we were watching the documentary and you and uh, I think some of the last words that you uttered um, in your scene was uh, I won the lottery and it was just so beautiful. And and I think you're right. You're absolutely right. It's wonderful. I, I absolutely won the lottery, my friend. I absolutely won the lottery. Wouldn't it be nice if everyone felt that way about the children that they have? Yes. Um, have you been able to forgive your parents? Oh, oh. So, so let me tell you one of my turning points um, in my life of healing was that exact thing that you just said. Ah, is this your going rogue story? It's, it's, it's. Um, this is my go rogue story. Here we okay. go. Okay. So, here we go. I was in my early 30s, and I had just been released for the fourth time from attempted suicide. Four attempted suicides by the time I was 31. Oh, Rob. And I remember getting out of the hospital and getting in my car, and I remember looking in the rearview mirror and saying to myself, you know what? You've got a higher thing here to do because you have tried four times to kill yourself, and it has not worked. And I remember I drove to my mother's grave. I had not been to my mother's grave since I was 12 years old. I remember going up to the funeral parlor part and having to find out where she was. They gave me a map and told me exactly where her cat, her, her stone or her grave plot was. It took me about 45 minutes to finally locate it, but I found it. There was a little piece of silver that was there that had her name on it. No, to- no headstone. I remember falling to my knees and I remember saying to her, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you and dad for all that you put me through. I forgive you for not loving me. I forgive you for allowing him to touch us. I forgive you for not knowing what it is to be a parent. I forgive you, but I want you to know, I do not forgive you to free you or to free him. I forgive you to free me. Because once I forgave them, I took the power back. Yeah. I took the power back. And that truly changed my life. Changed my life. We must understand that forgiveness is not for the other person. Correct. Forgiveness is to give you the power back. And that's what I did. And by the way, from that moment forward, I have not touched another drug. I have had no suicide attempts. I have definitely suffered from some depression, but my life has completely been different, all because of that. Now, did you plan to do that when you went there, or was it just this spontaneous thing that just unfolded? No, I drove there knowing that I was needing to forgive my mom and my dad. I knew that. I knew that. I, I felt it within my core. Uh-huh. I felt it for the years of therapy that just wasn't seemed to be working up until that moment. Um, I, I just needed to lose. I needed to let go of that baggage. Yeah. Because up to yeah. that moment, I couldn't forgive, you know, I, cause I couldn't, I just couldn't for, I was like, you're monsters. How do I forgive something like that? Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you, it was that last 30 days in that psychiatric hospital that made me realize that forgiveness is the power that you take, not the power you give. Yes. So that's my rogue moment, Lori. <laughs> I think that's awesome. And it really is a going rogue moment because there are many, many people on the planet that refuse to forgive. And and it takes a lot of courage and bravery. It takes so much willingness to do that. Um, and people can't do it. And um you know, it makes you, it keeps you a prisoner of the past. It's very it hard. Does. It truly yeah. does. Yeah. You know, um, and so I, I, like I said, I tell people all the time, forgive, but realizing that you're forgiving so you can have the power. And the other thing I always tell people too is that you always, always must love with unconditional love. If you truly love somebody, you, you have to love them unconditionally. That means you're not going to always agree with them. That means that they're going to do things that might 
might not be things you want to do, but if you truly love them unconditionally, you will always love them. Yeah, I agree. And that's a hard thing for us humans to master that. Yes. <laughs> it's possible, but it's, it takes, uh, it takes, it's a process. It takes a lot of work and, um, that's, it just takes, a, it's a process. It, it can be done, but it is not easy. It is not easy, but life isn't easy. No. Life isn't easy for each and every one of us, no matter how good we have it. Every single one of us have bumps in the road. We do. And I think, you know, you know, with the unconditional love thing, I think what what's so easy for people to do is when, like you said, when you disagree with somebody, you're not always going to have the same viewpoints and you're going to, you know, you're going to butt heads. Um, you know, everybody's different. We're all at different places. But the problem is when those things happen, uh, when contrast happens, it's so easy for people to withhold their love and and that's the thing you know you can still have you can still not be on the same page without withholding your love you can still yes. love your right you can still love your partner you can still love the people that you don't even know and you know on the other side of the the planet you can still love unconditionally without without being in in harmony a hundred percent of the time with the way that other people think and do and be you know behave you, 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 let me tell you, I say it all, when my husband and I are being interviewed, I tell people all the time, do you really think that he likes me all the time? <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, he doesn't. I was like, come on. I was like, you, you guys have seen me on TV. I was like, do you really think he likes me all the time? But the one thing I know, he loves me. Right. He loves me unconditionally. I, I give my husband praise all the time. I am the man I am today because of the foundation that he has helped build in our family. Um, and for that, I owe him my life. That's beautiful. And now you've got this wonderful, amazing foundation for all of these children to thrive and to see demonstrated before their very eyes what it means to be family, what it means to be in relationship with someone, to have a partner, what it means to parent, what it means to, you know, what it means to be able to still love, love unconditionally, even when you don't always get along. Better believe it. And that's why I hope that we're raising good humans, because at the end of the day, each and every one of us, we all need to strive to be good humans. And yeah. that will make the world so much better. So much yeah. better. Yeah. It's not a complicated goal. It really isn't. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just being a good person. It's not that. It's really not that hard. But I understand, you know, everyone's got their their experiences and their things that they have to work through that, you know, conditions it's, it, it's tricky, but it's not impossible. Um, especially when there are people like you in the world doing what you do, Rob, I really, I thank you and I bless you and, oh, and your thank beautiful you. partner for what you're doing. Um, so uh, before I ask you my last question, why don't you go ahead and take a minute to share where people can find out more about you, about, um, your foundation, um, your, your book, your podcast, you have a lot going on. So where can they find I you? I do. I have so much going on. It's crazy. And first of all, Lori, first, I want to say thank you. You know, thank you for, you have raised some good humans, by the way. Thank and you. I, I've got to give a shout out to Montana because I love her so much. Your daughter, she is one amazing, good, great, fantastic human. And I'm lucky that I get to call her my friend and her <laughs> and I have actually been connected for many years. So, um, I'm so, so excited that this connection happened between you and I, you know, people can go to comfortcases.org and they can read all about our charity and help us with our mission to make sure the children know that they are loved and that they deserve more than a trash bag. They can also go visit us on Twitter and Instagram at Rob Shear. They can also um, listen to our podcast called Fostering Change. It's on all the podcast platforms. It, we drop new ones every Tuesday. Um, the most important thing I tell people all the time is to realize that if you cannot adopt foster, and if you cannot foster, then every single one of us should volunteer. And if you can't volunteer, you might want to look yourself in the mirror and find out what your purpose is, because each and every one of us can give. And that doesn't mean opening your wallet. That means gives your time. 
time. Your time is the most valuable thing in the world. And that's why our charity has been so successful is because people have given their time. And so please, everybody visit comfortcases.org. And also if everybody would pick up a copy of A Forever Family, Fostering Change One Child at a Time, that's published by Simon & Schuster. It's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, And it's my memoir and talks about what, where I went to and where I'm at today. But it doesn't talk about my new son, Alex. So please visit our website to learn the story of our son, Alex. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. So, Rob, um, a lot of people, countless people have suffered childhoods uh, filled with abuse or some form of trauma. And, you know, as adults, they still carry that pain of of neglect or abuse or abandonment. Um, You know, basically the pain of feeling unwanted and unvalued. So, what message would you like to share with our listeners who still have healing to do about what to do with that pain? Well, you know, I said this a little while ago, you got to take your pain and make it into purpose, as Kathy Lee had said, and I truly do believe that. And each and every one of us have a purpose. We just have to dig down deep and find out what that is. What is that true purpose? What is that thing that puts that smile on your face? The other thing, as you and I both talked about, is you've got to forgive. You have to, you'll never cross that bridge if you don't forgive. And then once you've done that, let it go, let it go. You know, I made the story, I told you the comment about getting in my car and looking in the rear view mirror. I remind people all the time, the reason that our windshield is so big and our rear view mirror is so small is that we should look in our past very few times, but we should always be looking in our future. That's what people have to do. Stop looking in your past and look to your future because you have the ability to make it bright. Oh, that is an amazing metaphor. I love that. That's just awesome. Well, Lori, thank you. You're amazing. Thank you. I, uh, I'm just delighted. I think we've shared some fantastic information and I'm, I'm hoping that all of our listeners, uh, got a lot out of this and, um, probably learned a lot of things that they didn't know. And I really appreciate all of the time that you, you know, spent with me today. And, and I hope you'll come back again at some point. I'm sure there are a lot more things that we can talk about. Oh my gosh, Lori, whenever you need, want me on, I will be there for you, my friend. Okay. We're going to, we're stuck together forever. So um, I love it. thank you again. Thank you to all your listeners. And again, you know, visit comfortcases.org and you also can make a difference. Take care. Beautiful. Bye, Rob. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, Rob never thought that he would be living the life that he is now. I mean, you heard it. What an amazing journey this man has been on. But he is just yet another example of how, against seemingly insurmountable odds, we can turn our lives around, starting by changing the way we think about our experiences and our stories. And rather than letting trauma and our disappointment in people use us, disempower us, and destroy our potential, We can use those experiences as sources of wisdom and become empowered to create a life that we love and to help others to be of service, to contribute on a larger scale. If you would like some guidance, shifting your mindset, overcoming some challenges or getting unstuck, I invite you to check out my website, lauribischoff.com, where you can learn what private coaching with me is all about. You can also find my books there, Common Sense Happiness, which helps you create a healthy mental diet, and The Food Print Plan, which helps you create a healthy food diet. Both of these books can be extremely effective at helping you make the shifts required to create a life that you feel good about. And of course, make sure that you you do go and check out all of Rob's um, social media platforms and his podcast. He has got so much good stuff to offer you guys. If you are loving all of the good shift being shared on this podcast, it would mean so much to me if you would just take a minute to give it a rating and a review. Those reviews also inspire other people to give it a listen. Until next week, stay feisty, my friends, stay healthy, and go make some epic shift happen in your lives. You too, Gary Vee.